So hello and welcome everyone. I'm your host Osama Gawish and this is Untold Stories podcast. After a four-year investigation on February 1st, 2022, Amnesty International released a 280-pages report with a sharp headline, Israel's apartheid against Palestinians. Amnesty concluded that Israel has perpetrated the international wrong of apartheid as a human rights violation and a violation of public international law wherever it imposes this system. It has assisted that almost all of Israel's civilian administrations and military authorities, as well as governmental institutions, are involved in the enforcement of the system of apartheid against Palestinians across Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory and against Palestinian refugees. Amnesty further stated that these acts amount to the crime against humanity of apartheid under both the Apartheid Convention and the Rome Statute. Israel's Foreign Minister Yair Lapid retaliated by accusing Amnesty of quoting lies shared by terrorist organizations, accusing Amnesty of anti-Semitism. United States and Germany and the United Kingdom joined Israel in condemning and disagreeing Amnesty's report. Last year, Human Rights Watch said in a 213 pages, that Israeli authorities are committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. The finding was based on an overarching Israeli government policy to maintain the domination by Jewish Israelis over Palestinians and the grave abuses committed against Palestinians living in the occupied territory, including East Jerusalem. In this episode, we will try to find out more about terms like apartheid, anti-Semitism, and answer the question of does Israel commit the crime of apartheid against Palestinians or not? Joining me today in this episode, Akshaya Kumar and Andrew Finstein. Akshaya Kumar is Director of Crisis Advocacy at Human Rights Watch. She oversees the organization advocacy response to emergency and develops innovative strategies to respond to evolving crises. Kumar joined Human Rights Watch as a Deputy United Nations Director in 2015 and represented the organization at United Nations headquarters in New York for four years. She previously worked at the Enough Project, where she helped launch the Sentry, an initiative that seeks to freeze war criminals out of the international financial system. She is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Akshaya holds a Juris Doctor from Columbia University and an LLM in Human Rights, Conflicts and Justice from SOAS University in London. She speaks Tamil, Hindi, Spanish, Arabic, and English. And our second guest today is Andrew Finstein. Andrew is currently Executive Director of Shadow World Investigation, an NGO that details and exposes the impact of bribery and corruption on democracy, governance, and development in the global armed trade. He was named amongst the 100 most influential people in the world working in armed violence reduction. Along with two colleagues, he was voted South Africa's anti-corruption hero of 2014. Andrew is a former African National Congress member of Parliament in South Africa for over seven years, where he served under Nelson Mandela on the Finance and Public Accounts Committees and as Deputy Chair of the country's Audit Commission. Andrew also is the author of The Shadow World Inside the Global Armed Trade, which revealed the corruption and malfeasance at the heart of the global arms business. He is the son of the Holocaust survivor. He introduced the first ever motion on Holocaust remembrance in the history of the South African Parliament. He is an active campaigner against all forms of racism and oppression, including for the rights of Palestinian and Kurdish people. So Akshay and Andrew, thank you very much for joining me today. If you just unmute yourself, please. Thanks so much for the invitation, Osama. It's great to be here. Likewise, Osama. I'm happy to join. Thank you very much. And let me start with you, Akshaya. What does apartheid mean? So Human Rights Watch, as an organization of lawyers and researchers, we refer to the crime of apartheid as a crime against humanity as defined in public international law. Uh, and we referred to statutes and treaties. We looked at the writings of qualified publicists. And we found that there are three primary elements you need to be committing the crime of apartheid. 
The first is an intent to maintain domination of one racial group over another. The second is systematic oppression. And the third are inhuman acts. Uh, and after years of methodological legal analysis, as you mentioned, Human Rights Watch, my organization, and more recently, Amnesty International, we've both find uh, that this crime, the crime of apartheid, is taking place in Israel, and Israeli officials are committing this crime against humanity. So I'm just a bit before we continue, I want to say to our listeners, uh, you can uh, engage with our conversation. Just press the call button. You will be held in a caller's queue, and then you can ask questions or make a contribution. So, Andrew, what are your views on the Amnesty International reports last week with this choking uh, headline, Israel's Abertai? Well, I think, you know, much like the Human, the human um, Rights Watch report that Akshaya has just mentioned, the Beth Salem report, an Israeli human rights organization, and now the Amnesty report. I mean, we in South Africa, in the liberation struggle against apartheid in that country, have for many decades identified Israel as an apartheid state. Um, the legal definition makes it absolutely clear. The behavior of the Israeli state makes it absolutely clear. And for us as South Africans engaged in a liberation struggle, the complicity of Israel with South Africa, they helped each other become nuclear powers, was just a further recognition um, of their common system of apartheid that they were both trying to defend. Oh, sorry, I was unmuted. So, yeah, thank you, Andrew. And actually, in your report last year, Human Rights Watch, you called the situation that Israeli authorities are committing the crime against humanity of apartheid and persecution. Last week, Amnesty International stressed on the apartheid term. So my question, and I think it's important to our listeners to know, what difference does it make to call the situation in Palestine and Israel as apartheid? Well, I think there are two parts to this. The first is that committing any kind of a crime against humanity is seriously problematic and it puts officials who are responsible for this crime at risk of prosecution under public international law in the context of universal jurisdiction, maybe even one day before the International Criminal Court. That's for all crimes against humanity, persecution, apartheid, um, even certain uh, serious war crimes. But this institutionalized discrimination, which we've seen and documented against Palestinians in Israel, uh, and this crime of apartheid, I think, also holds special resonance because there's a particular convention against apartheid that many states around the world, governments, have pledged themselves to. And as a part of that, uh, they made a promise to take steps specifically to eradicate the crime of apartheid wherever they found it. Uh, and so that creates a different dynamic in the discourse. We have a sense that we don't want to see the crime of apartheid happening ever again. That's what these governments committed to. And now with the findings of serious international human rights organizations, of Israeli groups, um, of groups like Betselem, which Andrew referenced, we have a growing consensus that this crime is taking place in the modern times, currently, every day. And that demands action from these governments. Otherwise, they risk complicity themselves. And so what are the, the evidence you have as a human rights watch and also that the amnesty revealed last week? So our reports are based on extensive evidence and documentation, and we take each element in part. Uh, we look at the domination of one group over another. We look at the essence of the discriminatory laws and practices which are happening against Palestinian people. And we also look at the structure. Uh, and, and what we find is that there's actually a system of domination. The three elements of the crime come together in the occupied territories pursuant to a single Israeli government policy 
we show that that policy demonstrates an intention for domination of Jewish Israelis over Palestinians, that that exists from the river to the sea. And in the OPT, we also find um, that is in the Palestinian territories that are occupied, um, that this systematic oppression and inhumane acts that are being committed against Palestinians add to the mix. Uh, and that's how we come to the conclusion of the crime of apartheid. If you look at both reports, um, and not just the reports of Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, but of many other respected human rights organizations, you'll see that we conducted our research independently. We evaluated different case studies. Um, we focus on different issues. Uh, for example, Amnesty International looks quite a bit at housing demolitions. Human Rights Watch looks uh, at the, uh, the roads, the system of settler roads, for example. Uh, but we both come to the same fundamental conclusion, which is 54 years of occupation is not temporary. We should be honest, the peace process is stalled. We need to center respecting human rights now. And the reality on the ground for millions of Palestinians is apartheid. Yeah, and Andrew, for, for many years, you know, the first country that came up when you read the word apartheid is South Africa. So uh, as a former member of South African Parliament, do you think the system of apartheid enforced by Israel is the same or comparable to the situation in South Africa between 1948 and the mid-90s? I think that the, the word apartheid is an Afrikaans word meaning separateness that was coined to describe the situation um, in South Africa. The word hafrada is used to describe the separateness in Israel. And you know, of course, these are two different countries, two different contexts, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. For instance, in the South African context, um, black African labor was extremely important to the South African economy, and black Africans were in a majority by comparison to a much smaller white minority. Um, and that there were a number of other differences, but where the common elements um, are absolutely obvious to those of us who grew up in the apartheid system of South Africa and who have studied Israel, which I have done both, you know, being Jewish, my parents took me to Israel on many occasions as I was growing up. Um, later in my life as a young adult and then an adult, I traveled to Israel regularly because I research and investigate and expose the corruption and human rights abuses of the global arms trade, of which Israel is an absolutely crucial part. So I spent a lot of time in Israel as well. I have um, a lot of friends, colleagues and comrades in Israel. And from that experience of, of both of these systems of separateness, um, there are a number of, of obviously common elements. So the first is the issue of land expropriation. So in South Africa, there was something called the Native Land Act, which effectively deprived all South Africans who were not white from, and I'm sorry to use this racial nomenclature, but it's the only way one, one can describe the system that existed in South Africa. Um, it made it illegal for, for black South Africans to own land outside of the homelands or Bantustans, which I'll come on to in, in a minute. In, in Israel, um, you have a series of laws, starting in 1950 with the absentee property law. Um, you have a common pattern of inhumane forced evictions, which in South Africa, I mean, I witnessed some of these personally when communities were brutally uprooted from their homes to be thrown into what were racially defined group areas. Um, in South Africa, I mean, sorry, in Israel, you have had forced displacement of Palestinians from their, from their land from the moment of the Nakba and even before in preparation for the Nakba, which, you know, on the Israeli side is seen as the creation of the state of Israel and on the Palestinian side is seen as this, this great tragedy. Um, 
one also sees the need to retain these systems of of separateness through brutal, brutal massacres of various types in South Africa. Um, some of our listeners would have heard of the massacres of Sharpeville in the 1960s, of Soweto in 1976, of Boykatong in the 1980s. In Israel, you know, we think we think of the Great March of Return, Shatila. Yeah. Um, various. And, uh, Andrew, I, I want yeah. to jump in, in in this point because I I've read in the last week many many comments from pro-Israeli uh, accounts say that look. We are not committed to the apartheid because the apartheid we all know that's happened in South Africa. So we, we didn't commit these crimes against <laughs> Palestinians. So what, what do you think about this argument? Well, you know, adding to the things I've mentioned, the creation of the Bantustans or the homelands in South Africa, which were where supposedly black Africans could, could exist and develop equally but separately, which was a complete misnomer. There was no equality whatsoever. These were economically deprived areas. They were destitute. They were awful. They were tiny, 13% of the land for 83% of the people. You know, it's exactly like the occupied Palestinian territories, which have been broken up into smaller and smaller bits by the development of Israeli settlements, which which are illegal. Both systems have race-based identifications. Um, So, you know, to those Israelis, and, and remember that there, there are many citizens of Israel, Jewish citizens of Israel, who do regard Israel as an apartheid state. Um, they might not be in the Israeli government and they might be in a minority, but we shouldn't lose sight of that. And it's, I think, very instructive that Palestinians, those who are being oppressed, identify the system as a system of apartheid and great South African liberators from our yoke of apartheid, like Nelson Mandela, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, also identified Israel as an apartheid state. And in fact, Archbishop Desmond Tutu described Israeli apartheid as even worse than South African apartheid. And there are certain respects in which I absolutely agree with him. Yeah, and Maybe I uh, could child? come in here uh, yeah, yeah, because please. I think an- another element, and this is quite important, is that in the wake of the campaign to end apartheid in South Africa, there was a global agreement that we don't want to see this crime in any manifestation happen to any other people. And so apartheid then moved from the realm of analogy. You compare the situation in South Africa with the situation in Israel and you say, do these look exactly the same? To a defined international crime with elements that you can look at in a statute. Uh, And so that transformation is quite critical here because uh, then we're not in the place of simply drawing an analogy, but rather holding any situation to a similar standard. Um, At Human Rights Watch, we have previously done an analysis where we found that um, Myanmar authorities were committing the crime of apartheid against the Muslim Rohingya community in Rakhine State, uh, looking again at the very specific elements of domination of one racial group over another, of an intent uh, for this kind of a systematic oppression. And so you can see that we're not forced to simply look and see, are these exactly the same? Do they follow the exact same pattern and model? But rather, uh, for the purpose of finding a crime, are you meeting the threshold to be able to prove that in a court of law? Yeah, and regarding the, the, the court of law, the Apartheid Convention mentioned inhumane acts as one of its criteria. What inhumane acts has Israel committed and how does Israel's treatment of Palestinians amount to apartheid from human rights, watch perspective and from Amnesty International perspective, uh, Akshay? Yeah, this is something that, you know, I would really urge the listeners to read our reports because uh, they paint a truly devastating portrait of this range of inhumane acts which have happened, especially in the occupied territories. And, you know, that includes sweeping restrictions on movement for 4.7 million Palestinians who live there. You know, even the basic act of being able to drive to Jerusalem. If you're an Israeli settler who happens to live in that area, you can drive 
roads on special roads just for settlers with no issues. If you're a Palestinian, you have restrictions on movement, confiscation of much of their land, uh, denial of building permits in large parts of the West Bank, which has forced Palestinians to leave their homes under conditions that we find amount to forcible transfer. Um, this one is really important, the denial of residency rights to Palestinians and their relatives, some for being abroad when the occupation began or for moving for long periods of time, and the effective freeze on family reunification. This came up in the news just this week because we've seen uh, a new bill in the Israeli Knesset that is seeking to further circumscribe um, the ability for reunification. The parliament has approved the first reading of this Palestinian family reunification ban. Practically, that means that Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza who are married to Israelis are now going to be prohibited from getting long-term status in the country. Uh, if you can't see the clear discrimination there, I would challenge you to explain. Yeah, and, and regarding their action of Israel government, um, Middle East Eye um, published a report said that Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs has sponsored an advert to appear at the top of search results on Google when searching for Amnesty International, which lampassed the human rights group as anti-Semitic. The advert on Google directs readers to a web page labeling Amnesty as just another radical organization that echoes propaganda with no examination, and claiming that instead of seeking facts, Amnesty quotes like lies spread by terrorist organizations. So how do you see the Israeli reactions to Amnesty International reports last week? Andrew, if you just unmute yourself, please. Sorry, Osama, I lost yeah. you there for just a moment. Could you just repeat the end of, of that question? I lost yeah, you for about um, 30 seconds. Yeah, um, uh, I was saying that um, Middle East Star reports about the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs has sponsored an advert to appear at the top of search results on Google, who in searching for amnesty, you can see the group called anti-Semitic. The adverts on Google directs reader to a web page labeling amnesty as just another radical organization that echoes propaganda with no examination and said instead of seeking facts, amnesty quotes lies spreads by terrorist organizations. So my question, how do you see the Israelis' reactions to Amnesty International report last week? So I think, I think the Israeli reaction to the Amnesty report, not dissimilar to the reaction to the other reports that we've mentioned, um, is part of a very clear strategy. And I think that the strategy was born out of a real fear that the movement for boycott, divestment and sanctions, sometimes called BDS, um, which was absolutely crucial in the struggle to end apartheid in South Africa, has been to some extent imposed on, on Myanmar for the reasons that um, Akshaya was mentioning, was gaining significant momentum globally in response to Israeli apartheid. And I think that there was real fear amongst Israeli politicians um, about the impact of BDS and its ability to maintain the status quo in Israel-Palestine um, if economic pressures were brought to bear. And I think that a very clear strategy emerged to try and equate what is sometimes, I mean, anti-Zionism, which is, is a particular um, political ideological point of view um, that says that Israel shouldn't exist um, or certainly shouldn't exist where it currently is, a view that some people support and others don't, um, but also any criticism of Israel. Um, and the way to deal with that is to try and make criticism of Israel equivalent to anti-Semitism. So we've had this absurd situation where we have Western governments, the United States, the United Kingdom, EU governments, very happy to quote Human Rights Watch reports, amnesty reports, when it's against countries that they... Um, have hostile relationships with. But when it comes to doing the same thing with Israel, they are happy to discredit the authors of these works. And I think that we've seen it at um, an organizational and institutional level. I think we've seen it at 
at an individual level um, where people who are critical of Israel are described as anti-Semites. The absurdity of this situation is we've seen Israeli Jews who are critical of Israel being described as anti-Semites. I'm not saying that Jews can't be anti-Semitic, but it's extremely rare and very unlikely. We've seen a situation where, for instance, the Labour Party, the main opposition party in the United Kingdom, has had this sort of crusade, if you will, under its current leader, Keir Starmer, um, to claim that its former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, who was very critical of Israel, is an anti-Semite. This is somebody who has been engaged in anti-racist activism and campaigning his entire adult life. We have a situation now where Jewish members of the Labour Party in Britain are five times more likely to be suspended, investigated, and or expelled by the party than any other members, supposedly to address anti-Semitism, which is really insane. We've seen figures such as Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. Either people just ignore what they've said about Israel, describing it as an apartheid state, calling as they did in their lifetimes for BDS against the country, either just ignoring those views or when they are mentioned, describing them as anti-Semitic. And, you know, I myself have had personal experience of this because of my criticisms of Israel in relation to the arms trade, in relation to human rights, in support of these reports that have come out. Um, despite the fact that I am the son of a Holocaust survivor who lost 39 members of her family in the death camps, despite the fact that as a member of parliament, I introduced the first ever motion mentioning the Holocaust in the history of the South African parliament, because we were governed by neo-Nazis in the post-World War II period who, is, who established the apartheid state there, despite having written about and lectured for the Auschwitz Institute on genocide prevention, I am described as an anti-Semite because of criticism of Israel. So I think this is just a very blunt instrument and tactic to try and discredit those who are developing very well-researched, um, integrous and verifiable reports on the human rights atrocities being committed by Israel and on the practice of Israeli apartheid. Yeah, and uh, before we continue the discussion with our speakers, let's we have Anas from our callers. Anas, if you just unmute yourself and go ahead, please. Uh, thank you, Osama. Um, I just want to start by um, talking about one of the points you raised uh, at the beginning of this podcast. Um, you referred to the Israeli comments uh, that you saw online uh, that say that apartheid is not applicable in Israel, so it's, there's no apartheid. I've, I've read a lot of, a lot of these um, comments too, and I've done some research. Now, their argument stems from the fact that According to, to one of the definitions, um, it's, it's that apartheid only exists under one government. So, under, so for example, if a government is separating between their own people, um, that's the definition of apartheid for them. But, for example, and they say that Gaza and the West Bank are not under Israeli rule, so they, ca they can't be, apartheid can't exist. Uh, now, whilst they're both Gaza and the West Bank, they're both under occupation. The Israelis do decide who goes in and out. Uh, they choose what what goods come in and out, which what people go in and out, um, and they can start and stop wars whenever they want. Uh, so this argument, really, from their side, is completely unacceptable. I mean, I'm I've myself I've lived apartheid. I'm I'm from Gaza and I have a Gaza ID, and this Gaza ID. Um, bans me for entering the West Bank, it bans me for entering Jerusalem, it bans me for entering Israel, and I'm only allowed to enter Gaza. So, so yes, apartheid does exist regardless of, of how they want to define it. So whichever definition they're following has to be uh, re rewritten. Yeah, thank you, Anas. And I think, actually, this is a, a very fundamental point here. Anas is considered as a refugee. He has this card and he, he can't go back. And also the other argument that it's the West Bank and the Gaza, Israel said, okay, there is a, a Palestinian government in the West Bank and there is Hamas in Gaza. So uh, we don't have power. We can't control this area of Palestine, of Israel. So there is no apartheid there. 
Akshaya, what do you think? Well, I think uh, Anna said this more eloquently than I could. Uh, fundamentally, Israel uh, retains great degrees of control over the lives of Palestinians who are living in Gaza and in the West Bank. And the ongoing effort um, with regard to settlements uh, really shows this, you know, sort of broader intent, which is to seek maximal land in the area between the river and the sea with minimal Palestinians. Uh, and also, you, you can see the methods of oppression might differ for a Gaza ID holder, for example, as Anas said, um, barred with few exceptions from leaving Gaza versus a West Bank ID holder or an East Jerusalem resident. Uh, but they all fit under the broader system of domination, which we found. Uh, and we've found common tactics across, uh, whether it's in um, in the West Bank, Gaza, or even within Green Line Israel. So for us, uh, the formal policy of separation between Gaza and the West Bank, the Oslo Accords, you know, the notion of a single territorial unit, none of this um, in any way uh removes the legal reality, which is that Israel's uh, own policies control the lives and the livelihoods of Palestinians and their discriminatory restrictions on residency and nationality, the land seizures. These apply to people inside Area C, inside East Jerusalem, in the Negev, um, in the West Bank, in Gaza. There's there's really no uh, area under which um, Palestinians who are living under occupation aren't under Israel. Yeah, and uh, also we have Mohammed. If you just unmute yourself and go ahead, please. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm really uh, interested in something that uh, Akshaya actually picked up on when she started speaking just now, uh, when she mentioned the idea of uh, the river and the sea. I'm Palestinian myself uh, from uh, Yaffa. And uh, funnily enough, yeah, he's speaking on this topic and amnesty and the amnesty report, and I have it open right in front of me now. And the next question that I'm about to pose is for both Andrew, Akshaya, and uh, Osama as well, if you want to answer it. Um, uh, last week, uh, the Minister of Education in the UK, uh, his name is Nadim Zahawi, he uh, went out and he decided to say that the famous chant that we chant in the protests for Palestine from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is encouraging uh, terrorism and is basically anti-Semitic. Uh, so, yeah, and the, the coincidence for me with this happening is that he came out and he said this uh, around the same time as Amnesty's report came out. Uh, and uh, Amnesty's report, when I was reading it now, and the reason why I mentioned this is because at the end of their report, they say that the way forward is to call for an end of the brutal practice of home demolitions and forced evictions as a first step. To me, as a Palestinian, yani, with uh, people, politicians, with strong power, like Nadim Zahawi coming out in 2022, and increasing the war on Palestinians by saying that protest chants are anti-Semitic, it makes me feel like when reports like Amnesty's report uh, is saying that there are steps and there was a way forward and to call for an end of the brutal practice of home demolitions, it makes me feel like all of these things are just a dream or are not feasible. So how do you guys feel about that? I feel like that's something that I find very interesting. Yeah, and Andrew, I think this is a very reasonable and realistic question. This is what the Palestinian abroad or in the UK are living and are facing with the Ministry of Education. What do you think? I, I think more than anything, it's a reflection of the extremely tawdry nature of politics, not just in the UK at the moment, but globally, where the sort of the political compass has moved so far to the right where it's regarded as instinctive for 
politicians of both the major parties in the United Kingdom, um, many of the politicians in the United States and in, in the EU, to have this sort of knee-jerk reaction to anything relating to Israel and the Palestinian situation. And, you know, what Akshaya says is so true that the definition of apartheid isn't about two situations being identical. But I do think that there are some things from the South African experience of apartheid um, that are extremely instructive for the Palestinian struggle. And one of those is that we mustn't forget that Ronald Reagan, the then US president, and Margaret Thatcher, the then UK prime minister, both described Nelson Mandela as a terrorist and believed that the apartheid state should execute him because it was too dangerous to keep him alive. And the movement to liberate South Africa, the ANC, the PAC, the Black Consciousness Movement, were described as communists um, who wanted to attack not, you know, it wasn't about their liberation from an oppressive, unjust system. It was about wanting to attack a way of life, certain values, etc., etc. And I think we obviously see the same discourse in relation to um, the Palestinian struggle. I think the way in which slogans that have become absolutely crucial to um, the struggle for Palestinian um, freedom have been interpreted for very narrow instrumental political ends have to be confronted. And I think we are starting to see very slowly a turning of the tide. So, you know, Minister Zahawi's view is not the view of the majority of British people. The sort of use of anti-Semitism to try and discredit anybody who criticizes Israel has over the past few weeks, with it being used to tarnish not just the human rights organizations we mentioned, but the writer Sally Rooney, the actress Emma Watson, neither of whom are huge political figures. Um, and just last week, we had a situation where a young Palestinian woman who, like Anas, born and grew up in, in Gaza, uh, received a lectureship at a university in the UK and was suspended because of allegations of anti-Semitism, because of things that she'd said about Israel when they were attacking her family home in Gaza when she was a teenager. That's been reversed. And I think we're starting to see a turning of the tide. And I think a key part of the struggle to liberate Palestine from apartheid and occupation is actually providing the information that shows that in fact, this is in no way anti-Semitic. It is in no way as murderous as politicians who we have to acknowledge are extremely right-wing in their ideological outlooks are claiming. And we have to correct those sorts of um, discourses of misinformation wherever they occur. Um, it was Edward Said, the, the Palestinian intellectual, who described this sort of process of power repeating untruths until they have the force of truth. And it's our responsibility as, as activists, um, Palestinians and those of us who support the Palestinian struggle, to constantly ensure that these untruths are corrected, that those who espouse them are discredited for these extraordinarily narrow and yeah, and uh, I think this is a, a very good question to you, uh, Akshaya. Human Rights Watch now and Amnesty International are anti-Semitic because uh, obviously they are criticized Israel. So now this is a big challenge for you. How can you keep revealing human rights violation and say Israel is committing this crime of apartheid without facing the anti-Semitic accusation? Or uh, what is the line between revealing truth or talking about human rights and to be anti-Semitic? For us as a neutral human rights organization, uh, we are willing to, to speak that truth regardless of what 
slur or slander may be thrown against us. Uh, but, you know, we have to address every organization's uh, record from a factual basis. So on the question of anti-Semitism, uh, Human Rights Watch is opposed to all forms of discrimination and intolerance, and that includes Islamophobia, and it includes anti-Semitism. Uh, and we have repeatedly and publicly denounced anti-Semitism. We've worked on this issue. My colleague uh, Wenzel wrote in the New York Times about rising anti-Semitism in Germany. We've spoke out about attacks against synagogues. We've condemned anti-Semitism in protests against COVID restrictions. Uh, we have focused on government-supported anti-Semitism in Hungary, uh, and we have also spotlighted and condemned anti-Semitic violence and speech, uh, which rose in the United States in the wake of the 2016 presidential election. So for us, our record is clear. We do address anti-Semitism, and we are opposed to anti-Semitism. Uh, but to suggest that merely criticizing the state of Israel or referring to a, a description of the territory that we're talking about with the phrase from the river to the sea is anti-Semitic is an attempt to, um, to confuse the average person, uh, to shift away from the facts that we have documented and revealed to shift away from our recommendations, which I think are so important to talk about what actually we're calling on governments to do and to change the narrative to be talking instead about intention or anti-Semitism or some kind of bias against the state of Israel. But, you know, one thing really struck me about what you said, Andrew, which is that I do believe the tide is turning uh, and in the wake of our report being issued in 2021, uh, a number of senior Israeli officials spoke out about uh, the situation in their country using the term apartheid. And when I mean senior officials, I'm talking about a former attorney general of Israel. Uh, I'm talking about a deputy attorney general of Israel, which um, Yehudit Karp said, an apartheid regime is the name given in international law to a regime of the type that Israel is maintaining in the occupied territories. Uh, and then something that I'm sure you're aware of, two former Israeli ambassadors uh, to South Africa said that Israel is the sole sovereign power that operates in this land. It systematically discriminates on the basis of nationality, ethnicity, basically of a racial group. And the reality, and they said this, the reality as we saw ourselves is apartheid. Um, these are the words of Israelis themselves. So to start to say anyone who's critical of Israel, anyone who uses the term apartheid is anti-Semitic, then you need to, to really evaluate, would you be calling a former attorney general of Israel anti-Semitic as well? Absolutely, Akshaya. I think it's also very important to, to restate what is hopefully obvious, um, but that struggle, the struggle against racism, which is a struggle that has gone on, unfortunately, for thousands and thousands of years, um, has to be anti-racist in its nature. And that has to be a struggle against any form of racism. Who, whoever is being discriminated against or abused and you know, as, as somebody who experienced anti-Semitism from a very young age in South Africa and growing up with, with my family history that I did, to see the growth of anti-Semitism, as you mentioned, with people who Human Rights Watch have criticized, like Viktor Orban, like Donald Trump um, and others, to see an increase in attacks on synagogues is absolutely devastating and appalling. But at the same time, to see similar, if not greater, increases, particularly in the United Kingdom in Islamophobia, since the whole Brexit debate started in this country, um, is as devastating. To see the increase in anti-black racism that occurred in the United States during the Trump years and beyond. These are all one struggle. And... You know, as as Nelson Mandela used to used to tell us both publicly and privately, you are either against all racism or you are part of the racism problem. And we must always bear that in mind when we engage in struggles for liberation, 
in struggles for justice and equality around the world. Yeah, brilliant. And before we continue, I just want to go to Mahdi Hassan, the American TV anchor at MSNBC, who made his point on this argument regarding the anti-Semitism. And are we expected to believe that Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, which last year also accused Israel of apartheid in a detailed report, that they are filled with raging anti-Semites? Raging anti-Semites? How about Israeli human rights groups like Bet Salem and Yesh Din that have also said Israel is committing the crime of apartheid against Palestinians in the occupied territories? Are they anti-Semitic too? How about a quarter of American Jews who say they think Israel is an apartheid state? Are they putting themselves in danger by saying that? Come on. Look, you don't have to believe Israel is committing apartheid against the Palestinians. You don't. You can disagree with that claim in good faith. It's a free country. And I admit it's a contentious and sensitive issue. What you cannot do is simply shout down all references to apartheid as anti-Semitic or anti-Israeli or biased or dangerous. You have to engage with the argument and with the evidence presented by multiple human rights groups. You have to read their damn reports and you have to speak to Palestinians. So you have to speak to Palestinians This is a very good point from Mahdi Hassan and Andrew. The United States, Germany, the United Kingdom, they all obviously condemned and disagreeing amnesty report. So the question, and I think you answer a part of this question earlier. Why is it that all criticism of Israel from this human rights group are all rejected by this government and yet accepted and welcomed and maybe endorsed when the criticism is of other countries like China and many Middle Eastern countries like Iran, like Turkey and Egypt? I, th- I think it's a combination of things. I think, you know, in the case of, of countries like Germany and Austria, um, who have made it very difficult, in some instances illegal, to promote BDS against Israel, um, there are obviously historical reasons given their role in the Holocaust, um, in the genocide against Jews, um, and many other people we shouldn't forget. Um, it wasn't just Jews who, who were killed um, by the Nazis. I think there you are talking about an overreaction to a quite legitimate national guilt and are coming to terms with these unspeakable horrors that were committed by these countries and trying to move beyond them. I think it is, unfortunately, a reaction too far. Um, But I think it is being used for political purposes and it is being used very strategically by the Israeli government. And I think here, you know, something you've just said becomes important again as a jew as a jew whose family suffered as a consequence of the holocaust i really take the words of of holocaust survivors to to try and deal with current struggles and one of those survivors an extraordinary woman called irina klepfis who was a child survivor of the warsaw ghetto speaks about The way to pay tribute to those we loved who struggled, resisted and died is to hold on to their fierce outrage at the destruction of the ordinary life of their people. And she goes on to describe what happens in the occupied territories every day. The hysteria of a mother grieving for a teenager who's been shot, a family stunned in front of a demolished home, etc., etc. And she says, you know, at these moments of recognition, we must remember the past. We must feel the outrage that inspired the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto and allow it to guide us in our present struggle. So we as Jews, I believe, have a special responsibility to call out these double standards on the part of these governments. But at the same time, we also have a responsibility because, you know, just as I grew up as a privileged white South African in an apartheid system, that every step of my life, I got privilege from this racist system. And to me, that meant that I had a responsibility to oppose that system. But 
I had to listen to and be guided by those who suffered the oppression. I had to be guided by black South Africans who suffered the consequences of apartheid every day. And in the same way, I think we have to be guided by the voices of Palestinians, both on the ground and in the diaspora, who suffer the daily trauma, the daily humiliation of oppression by Israel. And it is from them that we must gain and constantly assess our moral compass. Yeah. I'll get back to our callers again. Mohammed. if you have another question, go ahead. Yeah, that was really interesting. A really interesting insight you had there, Andrew. I really appreciate it. And uh, I just want to pick up on just one question here. Uh, picking up on the audio that Osama played for us with Mehdi Hassan saying, you have to talk to Palestinians. It's good that you've got me here and I know Anas as well, both of us Palestinians. So it's good that this is happening. Uh, I have actually a question directly for Akshaya speaking as she's speaking for Human Rights Watch is that uh, as so I am a student uh, in London, a Palestinian student, and we face a lot of uh, difficulties in uh, activism for Palestine uh, in, in, in our college or in our educational environment because of the Israeli lobbies and how they push for their uh, ideologies. So uh, what would the Human Rights Watch advise uh, the students uh, in the UK, at least, uh, that want to support Palestine but are facing uh, obstacles from the Israeli lobbies, uh, etc.? Great. Akshaya, if you want to jump in. Well, thank you for your question, Mohammed, and also for your passion. I think that, you know, as you mentioned, it's, it's very important to have Palestinian perspectives in these conversations, um, not just about describing the situation, but also around uh, describing what we think should happen. And, and we began the discussion today with a reference to what we at Human Rights Watch uh, think governments should do. Uh, governments have committed themselves to eradicate this crime of apartheid wherever they find it and see it. They've committed to prosecute individuals who are responsible for it and to avoid complicity with it. And that means in, in, in the case of Israel, taking a very close look at the ways in which, for example, the UK government uh, does enable this crime and particularly officials guilty of this crime to, to continue. And we have seen really amazing activism inside the UK, um, you know, on a diverse range of topics from universal jurisdiction where there was an attempt um, to issue an arrest warrant for an Israeli minister who uh, didn't uh, who who landed in London and um, there have been efforts to to challenge a lot of the policies and practices by the UK government but equally uh, and you point to this Mohammed there have been uh, efforts from the other side to constrain free speech and to make it more difficult to even speak out as a matter of principle. And as a human rights organization, you know, this is where we stand in solidarity with you to try to push back against um, regulation and attempts to curb speech uh, using the justification of avoiding anti-Semitism, but really in an effort to chill dissent. And, and we'll certainly continue to do that work. Uh, we do it around the world where people who, uh, for example, speak out in favor of BDS are, um, are, are, you know, forced into many circumstances. Some have lost their jobs, some have lost contracts, some have faced repercussions. And, and, and in those instances, as a human rights organization, we see really it is our duty um, to be in solidarity with those who are facing reprisals for their attempt to exercise their right to free speech. Great. And I think we have another contribution from Anas, if you just unmute yourself. Uh, Andrew, you want to say something? So very briefly, I just wanted to say to Mohammed, as a, yeah. as a, as a student in the, in the United Kingdom, I think it's really instructive to look at the experience of Shahed um, Abu Salama, the student I was talking about, um, and junior lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University, 
and the extraordinary support she received both within the United Kingdom and globally, that within the space of a few days forced Sheffield Hallam University to admit that the allegations of anti-Semitism against her were malicious and unwarranted, and to not just um, lift the suspension of her, but actually give her a more secure contract as a lecturer at the university. So I think where Palestinian students and, uh, and of course, you face many difficulties in the United Kingdom and in many other parts of the world as well, is, you know, to show the courage um, that people like Shahid and other Palestinians are showing to continue um, with your solidarity for anti-racist struggles around the world, to be very clear. And when it comes to, for instance, being criticized for supporting BDS and, and other measures to try and bring about change in Palestine, to be, to try, and it's very easy for me to say, but to try and be courageous because that was really the key factor in bringing about an end to apartheid in South Africa. And I think it can be crucial in the context um, of, of Palestine and Israel. And I think more and more people in the United Kingdom and in the other so-called Western nations are starting to realize that. Excellent. Thank you, Andrew, for this. And Anas, if you have another question, go ahead, please. Uh, yeah, thank you. It's just a follow-up uh, to both the points that Andrew and Akshaya um, raised. So the tide, the tide really is turning at point that the Israelis have no control of at the moment, and their narrative, especially, is strongly struggling to survive. Um, mainly, I'd say, due to social media awareness, um, and they have absolutely nothing to face it with, apart from you know anti-Semitism claims. Um, and I believe that they were, the Israelis have never been prepared to face this level of criticism. Uh, which they're facing at the moment. Uh, so even even these claims um, are becoming weak. They're weakening by time because I, I think it was two or three years ago, The Guardian had, um, they had this poll that showed that 70% of those under 40 in the UK support the Palestinian cause. And uh, this, again, goes back to social media. So back when the Sheikh Jarrah events um, were unfolding, I remember Mona Kurd, her account had 200 followers and, and then it, it was doubling, doubling until it reached 1.6 million now. So people are turning to social media and they're ignoring the Israeli narrative that they've always heard on TV and on, on the news. So so even the Israelis using the actual, you know, using the term anti-Semitism itself is offensive uh, to, to the Jewish people and the struggles that the Jewish people have faced. Um, so yeah, this this is really offensive to the Jewish people in the fir- in the first instance before anyone else. Yeah, thank you, Anas, for that. And actually, actually, many Western governments like the United States have has relied on Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International reports on many occasions. Now they are disagreeing with you and condemning your reports when it comes to Israel. Do you think this will impact your work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I, I hope it won't impact our work on, on any conflict. Uh, I think there's a reason these governments uh, rely on our work and our analysis. And it's because it's rigorous. It's because it's impartial. It's because it's unflinching. And we will continue to apply the same approach to Israel and Palestine. And we hope one day the governments themselves will will see the the wisdom of our truth telling. I, I thought, you know, I might close with a really interesting story um, that I've seen in the UK, uh, which is um, a young Israeli man who is um, in a landmark case saying that he's requesting asylum in the UK because he would be made to participate in apartheid if he returned uh, back to Israel. And, you know, to me, that case case shows something quite interesting, which will force a reckoning inside the UK judicial system uh, to also define what this means. Uh, but also it points to a hidden engine of change, which is we see that, um, as was mentioned, younger people across the globe, including in Israel, are coming to terms with this crime and don't want to be a part of it. They don't want complicity, whether they are a taxpayer in the United States or in the United Kingdom or Canada or Germany, or in this case, this year. 
Yeah, and Andrew, there is another video on Twitter. Um, Lorena Khatib, who works at the Israeli Foreign Ministry within the Department of Digital Diplomacy, said to Amnesty International that better check yourself before you rake yourself, explaining how Israel is a multicultural community where all minorities have their own rights and can be at a higher position in the government despite their religion or ethnicity. So how do you see this argument? It's a nonsense. You know, I mean, for an Israeli government official to say something like that, when the vast majority of um, non-Jewish Israeli citizens and the overwhelming majority of Palestinians are saying exactly the opposite is a nonsense. And it reminds me of the sort of information war that apartheid South Africa spent billions and billions of dollars um, trying but, to run um, throughout. To be the- honest, Andrew, this video from Lorena's account, it shows many people, maybe a 10 or 12 uh, person, they are Israeli Dorzi or Israeli Arab, and they are all said we are proud and we have our own rights and everything is okay in Israel and we are a multicultural community. So they, they introduce evidence by themselves as a different minorities with a different religion, but the yeah, old... But Osama, you're talking about 10 or 12 people. Yeah. We are talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who would have, you know, who suffer the reality of Israeli life. And it's, you know, the fact that Israel claims to be an environmentally friendly, have an environmentally friendly government. But what it is doing in the occupied territories is contributing directly to the climate catastrophe in the region. The fact that um, Israel allows um, gay pride marches um, throughout the country doesn't make its oppression of Palestinians any better or any different. And, you know, the fact that the videos show 10 or 12 people, unfortunately, In apartheid South Africa, you could always find a few black South Africans who would say that their situation under apartheid South Africa was wonderful. And, you know, they tended to be of a very tiny minority of black South Africans who were either um, complicit with the apartheid state, were benefiting materially from the apartheid state, um, or often were saying something that when you spoke to them privately, they actually renounced. So, I mean, that really doesn't in any way um, affect the reality of the vast majority of people who suffer under Israeli oppression. It's like the other day in the Jewish Chronicle, which is a Jewish community newspaper in the United Kingdom that is so far to the right, it's, it's actually terrifying. They claimed that anti-apartheid campaigners had complained about how the suffering under apartheid was being misused to criticize Israel. The two people they quoted were a white Jewish former leader of a center-right opposition party in South Africa and the American-based daughter of a black member of parliament in South Africa who happens to be a pastor in an evangelical church that is deeply homophobic and that doesn't believe in the equality principle in the South African constitution. And these are presented as anti-apartheid campaigners. Neither of these two people contributed in any way to the anti-apartheid struggle. They were just being used by the Jewish Chronicle, just as a tiny minority of people can always be found to say what an oppressive state wants them to say. It doesn't change the reality on the ground. And I just want to, Osama, in the same spirit of what Akshaya was just saying about this extraordinary case in South Africa and the UK that I was unaware of, and I'm now going to look up, but also to say, you know, to to our Palestinian listeners, um, but to those who seek justice and equality everywhere, um, I left South Africa in the mid-1980s at very short notice to avoid serving in the apartheid military. And the night before I left my country, I was stood on a hill overlooking my hometown of Cape Town. And I thought to myself, 
I will never see my homeland again. This will be the last sight I have of my own country. Because in 1986, there was absolutely no prospect of apartheid in South Africa coming to an end. The reality is that four years later, Nelson Mandela was released from prison, the ANC was unbanned and legalized, and a further four years later, Mandela was president of a democratic South Africa that is not without its challenges, as any country has, and especially given a history like that. But it just showed to me how in what seem like the most difficult situations and with the incredible work of organizations like Human Rights Watch, like Amnesty International and others, with the resilience and courage of Palestinian people on the ground in the territories and in the diaspora, things change incredibly quickly. And I believe that the Palestinian struggle is one that will be won. And at times that can seem dark, as Muhammad and others have spoken about their own experience, we must never forget that. There have been extraordinary changes that have taken place in terrible situations in the world. And while the situation might seem hopeless today, there will be a brighter dawn in one of our tomorrows. This is a very strong message, Andrew, full of hope. And you are very optimistic. And I hope all Palestinians have the, the same optimistic like you. And Akshay, I want to wrap up this discussion with a final question to you. What next, after your report as Human Rights Watch and the Amnesty International one, do you expect sanctions against Israel? Well, we, we will take this one step at a time. I think the first and, uh, and for us key element has been to shift the discourse uh, to have more and more individuals and also government officials recognize and confront the reality of the ongoing crime of apartheid in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories by Israeli officials. Uh, but yes, our report does include recommendations for individual sanctions because this is a crime committed by individuals, not by, uh, you know, all Israelis in society, but individual officials responsible. Uh, we make recommendations for ending um, particular weapons transfers uh, to the Israeli state that are being used to commit the crime of apartheid. Uh, and we also make recommendations about prosecutions, uh, because I think the only remedy for an injustice is justice and justice can come in many forms uh, but you know one form of justice that could be quite instrumental here is is bringing a court whether it's the international criminal court in the hague or another court into the picture thank you very much for both of you for akshaya kumar the director of crisis advocacy at human rights watch and for to andrew fenestein the uh, executive director of Shadow World Investigation. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you for all our listeners and stay tuned every Tuesday at 9 p.m. London time for the Untold Stories podcast. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>